knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. All right, guys, welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, an exciting episode we have. Um, real quick before we jump in, uh, the podcast is brought to you as always by our good friends over at Scentlock. Um, I don't want to waste too much time because we have a big episode, an episode that I've been excited to make happen uh, ever since I heard he was coming on board. We're doing a question and answer episode with none other than Chuck Adams. Chuck, how are you, man? I'm doing great, Dylan. Uh, how are you? Oh, you know, it's 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 so pretty here. It's 68 degrees here in Kansas. And uh, me and my wife are about to head out, take the kids to the lake for the weekend, and just enjoy some not-too-hot weather. Awesome. Well, it was 27 here last night, so really? I, wish, I wish we had your weather. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've had like 96, 97, so it's been crazy hot. So this feels phenomenal now. Oh, that's great. Um, so just, I want to make a couple things noted real quick. This is the very first episode, uh, where we've ever done video. So if you want to head over to YouTube, it'll be on the YouTube, on Bear Archery's YouTube channel, and you can actually watch the podcast now. Uh, and I figured there was no better way to kick off a, the actual video portion than with Chuck Adams. So, uh, we've had people sending us in questions for about two weeks now, and we've got a plethora of questions to ask Mr. Adams. Um, before we jump in though, Chuck, give us a quick introduction to yourself, kind of how you, uh, came about. Well, I always wanted to be an outdoor writer from the time I was a little kid and read magazines, uh, uh, that came in from outdoor life and, and other outfits. And, uh, I went to college and got a couple of degrees and decided I didn't want to be a teacher like my dad was. Uh, uh, so I hired on with Peterson's Hunting Magazine about six months after they started way back in the 70s. And uh, after a couple of years of learning the ropes, I became a full time outdoor writer and I combined what I felt were my two best uh, talents, which was writing and uh, chasing after critters with a bow and arrow. Absolutely. Now, writing is something that I admire anybody who goes into the hunting industry for. Uh, everybody wants to, you know, take cool photos or videos or, but it's the writers who, who make the world go round. I mean, you know, used to, you didn't look up a YouTube video on how to tune an arrow. You read an article. Um, and, and I grew up in a, in a world where it was Chuck Adams, you know, like my dad would wait for the next article, com article to come out and read that and save it. And, you know, oh, I just read this tip or this trick or, or, or whatever, or all oh, these new arrows that just Chuck just did a review on or, or whatever it might have been. It was writing. You know what I mean? That's what that's what spread the word back then. 
right? And I was uh, reading other writers when I was a kid. So writing's been a longstanding tradition in the hunting industry. Uh, and there are still quite a few magazines around. Of course, they're sharing the uh, spotlight with TV and podcasts like this one and other things. But uh, you can still go to a, a Bowhunter magazine, uh, uh, Bowhunting World magazine, Bugle magazine. There are quite yeah. a few out there that you can still enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. All right. Question number one. Um, I, I had somebody ask me to clarify on the uh, Super Slam because there was something – you can definitely answer the question, but was it you or Jack Frost the first to complete the Super Slam with the bow? I was the first. Uh, uh, January 4th, 1990, I was the first. Uh, Jack was among the first five, uh, but Jimmy Ryan actually was the second. And uh, I think Jack was uh, third or fourth. Uh, but oh. I actually, I actually coined the term North American Super Slam. Right. Uh, and uh, Jimmy Ryan, thanks to my old pals at Peterson's Hunting Magazine, I was trying to be quiet about going after it. And uh, I just thought it'd be cool to take all varieties of North American big game with a bow. Uh, somebody at Peterson wrote an article about a year before I completed my. Uh, archery super slam and let the cat out of the bag that I was getting close. And then people like Jimmy Ryan started chasing me hard. Yeah. And Jimmy got his about nine months after I did. Now to, to clear it up, if I understand correctly, which I, I, I very well could be wrong. Um, Jack had done it, but, but there was like four more animals introduced or something or, or hunting season. No, made no Jack was the, Jack was the first bow hunter to take a grand slam on sheep. Oh, that, and that okay. might be what you're thinking about. Okay. Jack Maybe so. was not even close to the super slam. Right. Uh, when I completed mine. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you'll get a kick out of this. See, Jack was another person that I grew up hearing all about. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, TV and, and there was no social media. Um, so you hear about these, these people. Um, you never, you never really, I mean, I'd seen pictures in the past, but it, it wasn't like it is today. Uh, you don't see somebody in an airport and be like, oh, that, that was him, you know? Um, and I was at a, I was at the Pope and Young convention and I walked up and, and I said, well, hello, sir. What's your, my name's Dylan Ray. I'm the marketing director here at Pope and Young. We're pleasure to have you here. What's your name? And my boss just leans over and says, it's Jack Frostbow. And I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it was funny. Okay. Very good. I'd like to. Can I clarify one more thing about the Super Slam? Um, yeah. There, there have been three iterations of the Super Slam. Originally, it was the 27 types of big game recognized by Pope and Young. And uh, that's, that was the case when I uh, finished my Super Slam in 1990. Then two other uh, animals were added. I believe first it was the Thule elk, and then it was the uh, uh, Central Canada Barren Ground caribou. And that brought the total up to 29. So it was 27 and then 28 and 29. Um, uh, I'm happy to say that I the, was the first one to take all three of those iterations. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Uh, the first question I got in, um, and I know you've got several that, that I'll pull up here too. First question I got in was if you could cover your elk tactics and strategy. Yeah, that's, that, that'll be a mouthful. That could take the whole podcast. but That's uh, a whole episode uh, there. In a nutshell, uh, 
I rarely, if ever, call to elk. Uh, calling is a big deal with uh, call manufacturers and some folks. And I've called in elk for other people, but almost exclusively they've been medium sized to small elk. Uh, my experience has been that places where I hunt are always hunted hard by bow hunters. The elk are uh, very call shy. I believe they un understand that when they hear a sound that isn't one of their friends in the woods that they're really used to, uh, they should go the other way. Uh, I think they can recognize the voice of every other real elk in the woods. I do cow call some, I like to rake trees some, uh, that's how I pull them in. But uh, my favorite method is spot and stock or uh, locating elk in heavy cover with distant calls. And once I hear a response, which they'll always do, uh, without knowing that you're not real from a long distance, uh, then I try to sneak in silently. Uh, and that's worked out really well for me over the years. I've taken about 40 elk with bow and arrow, most of them Pope and Young size. And as you know, in 2000, I uh, had four leaf clovers in both pockets and I shot the Pope and Young world record that year doing exactly yeah. what I explained I do. How many, uh, this wasn't sent in, but how many Pope and Young uh, record book animals are you up to now? I'm up, to, right now I'm up to 211. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and from what I understand, uh, uh, that's about 30 ahead of uh, the next guy in line. Um, is that Frank? Frank Noska uh, has made no bones about, he's a good friend of mine, but he made no bones that he's chasing me, but I told him he's going to have to work really hard at it. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's somewhat younger than me, so he might beat me, but I'll probably be in my rocking chair by then. That's that's my hope yeah. anyway. I absolutely love Frank. He's a he's a super, super fun guy, genuine, down to earth. Um, but yeah, he makes no bones about it. He wants that that most. Um, right. exactly. so how many the, the, one th the one thing I keep telling him he'll never get is as many world records, Pope and Young World Records. What, what are we up to now on that? that? I'm sorry? What are you up to now on that? I have six uh, Pope and Young World Records. Uh, five have been beaten, like records always are. Uh, the late, great Fred Bear, my boyhood hero, had five. Uh, Jack Frost, by the way, has two. Um, but uh, the the uh, records are so high anymore that I don't think it yeah. would ever be possible again to uh, get five or six. Do you think with the introduction of the velvet categories, with some of those being a little more obtainable, uh, that helps those, a little bit? Those will be in play for a while, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, those are the, a, a person's best shot to uh, break a world record, like I did last year with the velvet uh, typical Sitka deer. Yeah. Took it from Alan. Alan Bolin, right. Um, here's a pretty simple one. Why the green beanie? Well, I grew up uh, shooting a recurve bow, uh, and the string angle on a recurve is, is uh, very shallow. And I lean my head forward when I shoot, and any bill cap hit the string and messed me up. So I started wearing the beanie whenever weather would per, uh, permit, uh, so the string wouldn't hit my my hat. Um, even with finger compound bows, which I shot for many years, uh, the string angle was still such that 
the uh, string would hit the beanie, or, or not the beanie, excuse me, the bill cap. So I went to the beanie. Uh, if it's really hot, I'll, t- I'll, I'll turn a baseball cap around backwards and hunt. But uh, uh, most of the places I hunt are pretty chilly in the yeah. uh, late summer or fall. Now, you did mention fingers, and that was a question I had sent in. Why fingers? Well, uh, there was no such thing as a release aid when I started bow hunting. Uh, and, and then uh, uh, solid ledge-type releases came in for target archers and recurve bows. And then I suppose in the 80s was when uh, mechanical release aids uh, really came on strong. Uh, Pete Shepley was one of the main people who pushed release aids. Uh, I always liked fingers because I figured if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, and and for many years, uh, I shot fingers just because I could shoot well enough without the extra paraphernalia to get the job done. Uh, it is more challenging to shoot with fingers. Uh, no question about that. And I enjoy challenge, but I don't recommend fingers to beginning bow hunters uh, or intermediate bow hunters. The yeah. best, fastest way to tune and shoot a bow accurately is to shoot a mechanical release aid, like I'm doing now with uh, the Bear Alaskan compound. Uh, I mean, I mean, I can drive tax with that thing, and t- I tuned it up in less than ten minutes, and uh, I can't even. I, I shot one group uh, and broke a knock, and took a picture of that group uh, for social media. And decided I'd better start shooting at five different spots. <laughs> yeah. 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 It'll do that to you. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm excited to talk about. I did get a couple questions about the Alaskan. Uh, before we move on, let me give a quick thank you to our friends over at Aero Junkie. Um, I'll tell you a few. Uh, well, last year I was at a mountain archery fest and uh, they had some incredible apparel that really caught my attention. I went over there, uh, but then I was enthralled uh, because they sell everything you need uh, to build your own arrows. And what I like is people who are not only passionate about something, but they give you the tools to be passionate about it too. And that's exactly what Arrow Junkie does. So if you are um, into building your own arrows, I would highly recommend you check out Arrow Junkie, uh, all different kinds of saws and all different kinds of of jigs and, and wraps, veins, everything you need to build your own arrows, as well as building custom arrows. So if you don't want to build your own arrows, uh, they do some incredible custom jobs uh, on your arrows. So go check out aerojunkie.com. Um Let's let's actually. Well, I want to save that one. I, I want to talk about the Alaskan. I had two questions sent in about the Alaskan, but um, we'll rave about that here in a little while. Okay. Um, you had one sent in. What is your favorite state to elk hunt, and why? Well, the state where I I took the uh, former world record is my favorite state uh, because the elk are really big there, and I have some good spots. That's Montana. Uh, unfortunately, it's very hard to draw an, a non-resident permit uh i'm working on my fifth year now without drawing a permit in montana so makes me sad but uh number two would be wyoming where i live uh there's some excellent elk here uh on average not as big as in montana but uh, uh i have managed to get a resident tag every year uh to hunt bull elk and uh, uh the, the the biggest one i've shot here was last year he scored uh uh, just a touch over 360 uh, gross points. And without the broken brow time, he would have been right at 370. Uh, so uh, I enjoy myself. I, I just go after the biggest thing I can find wherever I happen to be out hunting. 
Very good. Very good. Um, uh, one gentleman one asked, gentleman. what's the hardest hunt you've ever been on? Cows, white-tailed deer are the hardest animals I've ever hunted. Uh, Fred Asbell, the former uh, president of Pope and Young Club, uh, went to Arizona one year, uh, several decades ago, uh, to hunt uh, cows, whitetails. He he came back without a deer, and he was saying that any cow's deer with two ears and a skull should be eligible for Pope and Young. Uh, that's uh, uh, how difficult they are. They're your basic, very jittery whitetails living in noisy country, chased by mountain lions every day of their life, um, and spread far and few between. And when you add all that up, uh, I think they are the toughest animals to hunt with a bow. Most memorable hunt. This is all by the same gentleman, most memorable hunt. I don't think I can even answer that. There have been so many. Um, one that comes to mind, besides the, my world record elk, uh, which I saw the year before, thought about every day and night for a whole year and found him the next year. And three days later, I uh, managed to, to uh, get an arrow in him. Um, I would say my bighorn sheep in Canmore, Alberta, uh, back in the mid-1980s. Uh, it was the coldest year anybody could remember there, even residents who were born and raised wow. there. The day I shot my sheep, it was 31 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Uh, in 19 days of hunting, the very steep uh, Swiss Alps types country where you fell down all the time and slid down mountains and, and, it, and it were miserably cold. The warmest it was was 25 below zero Fahrenheit in the daytime during those 19 days. Wow. It was horrible. It was horrible on equipment. Uh, it was hor- even worse on my guide and me. You legally have to have a guide there. Uh, and uh, we finally, because there was no limit on resident tags back then, and the valley below the sheep hills was clogged with bow hunters sitting in their vehicles and looking out the windows with their spotting scopes. Uh, because of that, and the fact that it was a foot race to every sheep that pokes his nose out up on the hills, my guide and I climbed about 2,000 feet, set up a camp uh, on, a, on a narrow rock ledge and uh, camped about a week up there in that, in that horrible weather. Uh, the day I shot my sheep, I had uh, seven upper body garments on just so I did oh uh, shiver too bad to shoot my bow. But I got a nice full kernel ram eventually. I beat everybody else uh, to the sheep because they were in the valley and we were up there up there about 2,000 feet. So uh, it was miserable and it was awesome. Uh, the worst part of that uh, whole hunt was when my sheep staggered and fell over a cliff uh, that uh, my rangefinder said was a little over 400 feet high. And my oh. guide said, "My guide said we'll never get in there. Nobody's ever been in this box canyon that I know of at this time of year." We took ropes and ice axes the next day and went along a little eyebrow trail and got in there. I slipped once and grabbed the pine tree, and I don't. It was about a hundred foot drop below me. It was a scary time, but wow. my sheep was the, the left side was gone. The horns are evened up. One side with a splinter, I could tell, was uh, about 36 inches long, and the other side was 35. They ended up both being 35. Um, but we uh, chopped up the frozen meat and uh, carefully packed it out, and it was it was quite an ordeal, but very memorable. Wow. Favorite, and this one this one's definitely a loaded question, favorite trophy? Favorite trophy. Wow. I don't, again, it, it's probably a toss up between my world record out from 2000 uh, from Montana and 
the other world, Hoping Young World Record, I shot that very same year um, in northern Arizona, a gigantic bison. And if you've never hunted truly wild fair chase bison, you don't even know how difficult that is. Uh, uh, there were about, uh, uh, I think it was uh, 300 bison and a thousand square miles up there when I hunted wow. on, the, on the house in the House Rock area in Arizona. And the only way you saw one was to check watering spots or scattered water holes and then track the animals because they always drank at night. And I followed my bison from daylight until just before dark, climbing over a thousand feet and going, uh, it's hard to say, but probably 10 or 12 miles anyway, tracking him in the dust before I shot him. And he broke the, broke the world record by about three points. Wow. So. So those two animals are are probably the favorites, and I'm not, I'm not really big into huge trophy rooms, but I can tell you I have both those animals hanging in my uh, family room. That's awesome. What's next? Next uh, in the short term here is uh, back to Alaska to hunt Sitka deer again, uh, followed by antelope and elk and mule deer and uh, cows, whitetails uh, in the winter time uh, in Sonora. Uh, in the long term, I just want to hunt and shoot the biggest animals I can find because they're more challenging than than smaller animals that I usually pass up. And uh, but if I do that for until I can't do it anymore, I'll have a big grin on my face. There you go. Um, if you think that you can, if you think that there's a chance of killing another world record, what 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 species do you think it is? Well, I've had two world records in Sitka deer category, uh, uh, both typical. One uh, hard horn back in the 1980s, and uh, and then the one that I got last year in the velvet category. Um, but most of the world records I've gotten have been surprises. I didn't expect to find the biggest bull elk that anybody had ever shot with a bow. I didn't expect to find the biggest cow's whitetail uh, in in uh, 1989 in Arizona that anybody would ever shot with the bow. Um, so I, I really don't know. I would not be surprised. I don't, it's not likely it'll happen again. It took me 21 years to break the world record the sixth time after I shot those two in the year 2000. Uh, but if it happens, if I had to guess, I would say it'll be Sitka deer again because I spent a lot of time chasing them around and I just love them. Um. One question that we got uh, was a little more of a um, technical question. I got, uh, I guess. Um, how did you do all the photos? Did you have a cameraman? Did you pack a camera with you? How, how did all that work? Well, I've been an outdoor writer for over forty-five years, and uh, so I have to take a lot of photographs just for magazine work. Now it's social media and other things as well. Um, uh, and I did probably 99% of the photographs myself with a tripod uh, and a camera with a timer. Uh, thank goodness for digital cameras, because before digital cameras, you had to massively overshoot to get one good photo at exactly the right angle with exactly the right uh, lighting. But uh, an average animal, just to animal pictures, not to mention scenics and other things, Back before uh, digital cameras, I probably 
I probably took 200 photographs of every animal just to get one, what I consider to be a perfect photograph. Um, If I had a hunting buddy along, uh, he usually was not that camera savvy. And so I was, I had to do it mostly myself anyway, but I had it with a few uh, people over the years who knew how to take pictures. And that was a real um, nice thing to, to have happen because I didn't have to set up the tripod, set up the camera, run back and forth. I hope everything was right at least one time out of 200. Yeah. Expandable broadheads versus fixed broadheads. I think expandables are great for deer-sized animals if they're well-designed expandables, uh, not too flimsy, uh, not not too uh, high friction as they open up. Uh, and, and you can use your common sense when you look at expandables and see how how the, the, the blades open up. Um, for anything over deer size, I actually prefer fixed blades. Uh, they're harder to tune, um, but uh, you can always, especially with a release aid bow, you can tune up pretty quickly with fixed blade broadheads. As long as you spin your arrows and get the broadheads on straight and jockey them around uh, so they, they spin perfectly straight. Um, they're just, fixed blades are just stronger. Uh, some of them penetrate better than mechanicals. Uh, and uh, I like a fixed blade with a fairly small uh, trocar point in front or an actual cutting nose in front that drives really deep in an animal like a caribou or an elk or, or something even bigger like a buffalo. Do you still think it's possible to complete the super slam with a bow? Oh, I'm sure it's possible, but... Uh, you know, if you're not Elon Musk, it might be difficult. Uh, you got to have some coin, man. You've got to have some. I, I, I'm being, I'm over overstating it, but it's horribly expensive. Uh, uh, for example, when when I was going after the wild sheep back in the '80s, uh, you could get a good big orange sheep hunt uh, for probably one tenth what you have to pay today for that same animal. Yeah. Uh, some animals like the stone sheep, which surprised me a little bit. Um, you have to pay at least five or six times more than I did for a guided hunt. And uh, 13 of the, of the original 27 big game hunts that I made uh, for the Super Slam, uh, a guide was required. They were in Canada or Alaska for species that required a guide. So you, I love to hunt, just like Frank Noska. I prefer to hunt on my own if possible, but... Uh, some of my best friends are guides. Uh, and uh, if you have to go with a guide, uh, find a good one. Uh, you'll have fun, but you're going to pay a lot more money to do that. Uh, I saw a post a while back of a guy who had just taken an archery super slam. And he was uh, boasting about how cheaply he had done it. And I think it was like half a million dollars that he said he'd spent uh, to, to take the 29. Um, and uh he was cutting every corner occurring to him that he could. So I honestly wouldn't recommend it. Uh, in my opinion, there are some animals that just aren't worth that much money. Uh, I'd rather go and hunt 30 sick of black-tailed deer on my own for the cost of one sheep uh, than, than go after that one sheep. But then I've already got the super slam, so it's easy for yeah. me to say that. Well, and some people heard that half a million and they're like, holy cow, that is cheap. Uh, because mm-hmm. there's some hunts like the sheep, the stone sheep. I mean, you could easily drop 60 K on that alone. 
Oh, absolutely. It's gone absolutely through the roof. Uh, 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 it depends on where you hunt bighorn sheep, but the uh, Montana has a, a governor's uh, bighorn sheep tag every year. And as usual, that one tag went for over 300,000 this year. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, I, I won't, I guess I wouldn't go so far to say that it's obscene, but for the average bow hunter, um, I just don't think, I think you could have more fun hunting whitetails in your backyard and taking a do-it-yourself hunt for mule deer or elk uh, or, or, or cow's deer uh, or, or another species out of state. Uh, you, you'll have a lot of fun and, and you just won't be breaking the bank. Well, and there's so many other goals that you can set now. I've got a friend and his goal is to kill a whitetail in every state. Um, cool goal. I mean, that's a really cool goal. Um, every state that he can, um, or, or the world slam for turkeys or the world slam for deer. I mean, there's, there's so many different goals that you can go after now, um, that are much more obtainable, much cheaper. And like Chuck said, um, you'll have just as much fun. Uh, now sure. We'd all love to go kill a bighorn sheep uh, and nobody's saying that, but, um, Again, if you if you look up all the twenty nine, oh man, it's it's not only outrageously expensive. It's going to take you many years to get tags. It's doable, but um, I, in my opinion, I think it would take a lot of the joy out of hunting is trying to do it. I agree, and and that's if you uh, got your animal on the first hunt every time. It's expensive. Uh, uh, I was fortunate. I, I took every animal I was after on the first hunt except the mountain lion, and that took me four tries, believe it or not. But that was that didn't break the bank to do that. Uh, I, uh, Jimmy Ryan could correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but I believe he went on four guided grizzly bear hunts before he got a grizzly bear with his bow. Wow. You start doing that sort of thing in this day and age for grizzly or brown bear, which have to be guided. Uh, you know, you better have a long, hard talk with your wife about where that money's going. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and and hey, I would say this. I I had this conversation with Frank. Um, you know, Frank's on his third trip for the Super Slam, and I had this conversation with him. He said, "Well, Dylan, I, I'm a I'm not a married man. I drive an old vehicle that I carry liability insurance on. I live a different life than most people." Like I, I don't have to take a wife on vacation. I don't have to, you know, buy a new truck every year. You know, some dudes buy a new truck every two years. I go on a big hunt. Like that's just, I, I live different in order to make it happen. And so if you want to do it, it is obtainable. Um, but there will have to be some sacrifices made. You're going to have to live differently. Um, you're going to have to, to do some things different. And, and that's just the, the short end of it. Including with Frank. Frank lives in Alaska. That yeah. lets him to hunt most of the guided species on his own. And he's a pilot. Saves a, saves a pile of money for him. And uh, back in the 80s, uh, uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, when I was uh, going after the Super Slam, I lived a very meager life, too. I mean, I drove the same pickup like Frank for 10 years. Uh, I had a friend after I shot my mountain lion in 1990 and completed the 27 uh, North American Big Game Animals. He said, how can you do this? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it costs so much. I said, 
we were standing in his front yard. And I said, you see that motor home that's sitting there in the, in the driveway that you just purchased for more than I probably spent on a third of all my animals. It's a matter of priorities. Yeah. But the priorities, Bingo. unless you're Frank living in Alaska, um, or unless you're a very wealthy person, uh, even priorities might not cut it for you at this point with the super slam. Right. Yeah. Bingo. And Frank's a pilot. I mean, that, <laughs> that makes all yeah, the difference that, in the that world. That helps in Alaska, particularly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but I had a I had a guy one time uh, say say the same thing. Man, I wish I could afford to go on that hunt. And I said, "Well, quit buying cigarettes." And, and yeah. you know, maybe you don't smoke, and that's and I've went on this rant before on the podcast. I don't mean to dive into it again, but I'm like, don't go, don't go spend six bucks on a coffee at Starbucks every day, and you can certainly purchase an, an, a bigger hunt. Um, right. I mean, that, again, it's just, you're going to have to do some things differently, but it is, if that is your goal, it is obtainable. Um, and, and to the gentleman who sent in the question, um, I, I don't know if I should say his name or not, but you know who you are, uh, to the gentleman who sent in the question, if that is your goal, good luck, man. I wish you the best of luck. Um, I, I hope if you do do it, you'll, you'll send us in all 29 pictures so we can celebrate in that with you and, and, uh, make it a big deal with you. Uh, Chuck, are all your 29 in the books? Did they all make book? No, no. My polar bear isn't. Um, trying to, and, my, and my Roosevelt elk isn't. I think those are the only two. And uh, making the books with all of them just was never a priority for me. Yeah. I, uh, Tom Hoffman, uh, who was the second man to take the Grand Slam on cheap with a bow after Jack Frost, he was the first to, to take all 27 that were Pope and Young. I'm not certain if the next two that he got were Pope Young. I think he has all 29 now. Uh, but um, uh, I never went back. I, I went on one Roosevelt elk hunt, and I prefer to hunt uh, American elk, so I never went back. Polar bear, even back in the day, was very expensive. And uh, I decided after I shot a female polar bear with a nice hide but a skull that just missed Pope Young that I wouldn't go back for that either. Uh, so those are the two. What is the, um, for somebody who wants to kill a Pope and young animal, what's the easiest species to, to kill a Pope and young animal? Boy, Dylan, I would say a pronghorn antelope. Uh, uh, if you, uh, want to hunt with a, with an outfitter, uh, and hunt early in the season from a, uh, enclosed ground blind over water, uh, it's almost a slam dunk in a state like Wyoming, where I live, uh, uh, I think that that is the easiest uh, from access to Pope and young animals. So the minimum is 67, which is doable. And uh, uh, antelope during the rut in uh, late August and September, the, the, the bucks will drink once or twice a day. So if you're sitting on water in a fairly dry area, uh, you're, you're almost guaranteed to get a shot at, at a nice buck. I pronghorn is something I've never hunted and I certainly want to. It's definitely on my list, um, which we have them here in Western Kansas, but it's just such a, I mean, I think success rate with a bow is like 3%, um, something obscene. Um, so I definitely want to make it happen. Um, I wanted to really do it with my friend, Jim Willems. Um, and he, he's lost the access to the ground that he had. And so, um, but I will make it a priority in the next couple of years to try to do it for sure. If you if you want the the flip side of that, try to spot and stalk an antelope. Uh, yeah, I haven't shot an antelope from a from a blind 
since the 1990s. Uh, and I, I couldn't even tell you how many I've shot since. Almost, I, I, I'm sure I've averaged at least once a year spot and stocking in Wyoming and Montana and other places. Um, that's as difficult on those sharp-eyed animals as it is not so difficult if you're in a dark and closed blind. Right. Um, so as somebody who goes on so many different hunts a year, so many different species, so many different states, uh, how do you plan out your year of hunting as far as where you'll be when, you know, what seasons open where? How do you how do you plan all that out? Well, I do a lot of research, Dylan, uh, and I have my favorite animals. I, I know I want to hunt an elk every year, at least one. I love pronghorn antelope spot and stock, so I plan that. September is easy because uh, uh, Wyoming uh, archery season is the month of September, and I spend most or all of it here hunting mule deer, uh, antelope, and elk. Um, Alaska is where you hunt Sitka deer, and unless they've had a horrendously bad winter, I am up there every year. Uh, this year will be my 19th uh, trip to Alaska to hunt Sitka deer. Uh, if I if I make it the way I plan, so I like to hunt Sitkas in in August. Most people prefer not to because of the heat and the bugs and the meat salvage uh, uh, difficulties. Uh, October and November are better months for the average person, but October and November I'm doing other things. So August is it for Sitka deer for me. Uh, October I usually try to mule deer hunt. Uh, uh, in, in one or two places, Alberta, Canada, Montana, if I draw a tag, because their archery season goes through mid-October. November's whitetail uh, or mule deer, uh, either in Wyoming or someplace else. And uh, then then cows deer in, in the winter when I have time to go do it. So I pretty well, the last few years of Watkins on species, I enjoy to hunt the most and uh, and just just plan where I want to go. I will say um, there are some incredible tools. I know I've talked to you a little bit about uh, Season Report, um, but Season Report, you know, it gives you a calendar view and shows you everything that's open at what time and where. Um, but planning hunts, it, it can become difficult uh, because, you know, as hunters who were trying to achieve something, it, you know, you look at not just when things are open, but you look at well, when is the rut normally hitting in this area? Because I want to make it to there and then I want to make it to Oklahoma when it's normally hitting there. And then, uh, you know, whatever else, you know, I got elk hunts, I got these hunts and you're trying to line up everything to be in that spot, not only when it's open, but when it's the best time to hunt. Uh, so it can become difficult, uh, which is why the question was asked, you know, how do you, uh, I mean, obviously it's my pet peeve when somebody says I stumbled upon this, this giant, um, mm -hmm. It was an accident, you know, whatever, however they word it. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. You know, were you, were you planning on killing a new world record that day? Probably not. But you did things to prepare yourself for it. Like you made sure you were in the best spot to kill a giant. Just so happens it was a new world record. Um, so as somebody who has killed six world records, it, none of them were accidents. I mean, you had prepared, you had set up your, your schedules, you had found the places to be at the times to be there. Um, and so obviously, obviously you plan your hunts and plan them really well because you do it very successfully. Well, I always try to go someplace where I have at least an off chance of seeing a monster. Uh, and there are a lot of places where you will never see a monster. So you want to look at the Pope and Young record list and Boone and Crockett uh, as well to see where critters uh, of magnum size have coming from the last five or 10 years. 
Doesn't matter where they came from 20 years ago. They might not be there anymore. But sure, I don't like to go anywhere. There's a ton of elk places in the Western United States where you'll never see a bull that scores over 300 inches. Now, a 300-inch bull is a nice elk. But why go there when that's the max if you can go somewhere else where the max might be 350, 360, 370? Uh, you're yeah. just you're increasing your odds. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Um, well, before I move on, before I dive into that, because I have something I want to say, um, quick thank you to our friends over at NZ Campers. That's E-N-Z-Y Campers. These things are custom built for hunters by hunters. They are absolutely phenomenal. Let me see if I can actually, I want to show you these, Chuck. Uh, I fell in love with them. Um, I stumbled upon them. Let's see if I can share my screen here. Um, how do I do this? Share screen. That was easy. Um, I don't, I don't. Oh, here we go. There you go. Yeah. So these right. campers here, these are phenomenal. Like they're, they're made out of box trailers, but they're, mm -hmm. they have some incredible hunting features built into them. Like you can see here, the boot dryers, uh, they've got meat storage, scent free cabinets, gun cabinets, bow hangers. I mean, they are phenomenal. Different, uh, Different packages. You got a Western big game package, a waterfowl package, an Eastern whitetail package. Uh, sizing on the trailers are a little different. But guys, if you are in the market for a camper, I would highly recommend you to check out NZ Campers uh, because there are some phenomenal hunting features built into them uh, with giant meat storages, slide outs like, like you see there. I mean, just phenomenal campers. So go check out nzcampers.com. Uh, Chuck, one question we had was um do you still use a hip quiver i do still use a hip quiver uh but with a finger with a finger bow compound or recurve um because the arrow bends from side to side as it leaves the bow it makes the bow recoil and uh, uh if you're using a bow quiver every time you you pull about an ounce of arrow weight out of your quiver it changes the mass weight of your shooting setup and arrows tend to scatter left and right. That's why I originally started using a hip quiver. So that and the fact that the bow would hang uh, perfectly plumb in my hand as opposed to having that weight on the side uh, that would make it want to cant over. Not such a, a big deal with a, a, a release aid bow because the arrow doesn't bend from side to side when it leaves. It doesn't push the, the bow to the side at different rates, depending on how many arrows you have in your quiver. But I'm so accustomed to it at this point that I don't think I'll change. I, I don't even think about it. I don't look down. I just grab my arrow and uh, and it's on the string the next thing I know. How do you keep broadheads inside the hip quiver from tinking together, banging together, doling, scratching, bending, breaking? How do you protect in your broadheads solid, inside the hip quiver? They're in solid foam, uh, separated from one another. Uh, so, and, and, and uh, if it's a, a, a carbon steel head, which I don't shoot anymore, but used to, um, uh, those, those pockets that the uh, broadheads were in uh, tightly would be oiled as well. So uh, weather wouldn't bother anything. So what, what hip quiver is it that you run? It's my own design, which I sold for many years. I started selling the, uh, the arrow holster hip quiver back in the 1980s. And sold it through the mid '90s, and uh, it was all uh, full grain cowhide, uh, uh, and the, the prices of uh, 
cowhides went through the roof in the mid 90s. And I just felt it wasn't fair to try to charge $300 for a hip quiver anymore. So I dropped the project. But there are a lot of those quivers out there. I see them on eBay once in a while. Uh, uh, it was called the Adams Arrow Holster. And uh, it was an eight arrow quiver, which is designed for Western use and for backpacking. And uh, uh, they have a lifetime warranty. If anything ever wears out, the the uh, the leg strap, the uh, the belt uh, strap, anything, uh, it, it gets replaced for free. Very yeah, cool. good. I'm still using the same one that I started carrying in 1989. Really? So that's 33 years that that quiver has not given up the ghost for me. Very cool. Yeah. No, I, uh, the reason I ask is because I had a gentleman, he was looking at one of my back quivers and he asked that. He said, what about your broadheads? And I said, well, this isn't something that you would throw your broadheads in. This is more of a, what I would consider a, to be a novelty type deal. It was an old, you know, like a, just a, uh, bought from some sort of, I don't remember, but, uh, this wouldn't be something you could probably hunt with. And, uh, he mm -hmm. said, Oh, I get it. I'm like, yeah. I mean, if, if it were to be used to be more for like fill points in the backyard shooting, you know, so on and so forth. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's why I asked because I, I get that question not often because I don't use one, but, um, when people come into my office, I've got one hanging with just some old pretty recurve arrows that are, you know, mm -hmm. super beautifully fletched and, um, a couple that were, uh, built by Susan St. Charles in there and just, you know, some really special type arrows. And I'm like, well, you know, that isn't something you'd ever actually use for hunting for this that reason, kind of a, actually. kind of a tube type shoulder quiver is what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there is a, there, I think it was Glenn St. Charles that designed it. I, I think it's called the St. Charles back quiver, which sits in the middle of your back, like a backpack. And you reach around behind you and, and retrieve arrows. And it takes some getting used to. But the broadheads are covered and protected, and and if you're careful, you can fish them out without their clanking against each other. That's an option uh, for somebody who doesn't want the extra weight and the lopsidedness of a uh, bow quiver. Very cool. Um, why the Alaskan? I don't know. I picked it up, and it felt good, and. Uh, I love the grip. Uh, I like a small grip like most uh, serious archers do. Uh, uh, I set it up for my draw length and then it tuned up. I was shooting bullet holes in 10 minutes and uh, uh, I have an indoor 20 yard range and uh, I was putting them in the spot, the, the, the three inch spot I normally shoot at every time almost immediately. And I said, hey, why? change anything else that was one reason one is the other is uh uh sentimental i shot a bear alaskan compound bow back in the 1970s when uh bear archery brought it out it was uh, called the alaskan but it was uh, 48 inches axle axle it was a finger bow uh and, and uh i i hunted with that for a couple of years and took some really nice animals uh and uh the fact that Bear came out with another Alaskan this year, I just thought was cool. So I thought, what better than shoot an Alaskan uh, way back when and shoot an Alaskan this year? Um, one thing I like about the Alaskan, the, the average people I write to in magazines and talk to at sports shows and whatnot aren't made of money. You know, they're not going to go out and, right. and try the Super Slam. And the Alaskan, 
is, you know, a top bow at a reasonable dollar. Uh, it's quiet, it's fast, it's accurate. You really don't need to spend uh, a gajillion dollars uh, to buy an Alaskan, set it up with accessories and, and go hunt. And I like that idea. It's easy for me to recommend that both that reason. Well, and you're going back to our, our last conversation about, you know, making decisions to be able to hunt more uh, and to be able to, to purchase more tags and more outfitters and, you know, so on and so forth. And, and that's one thing I had this conversation last episode, actually, with um, um, Mike's archery. And we talked about that. We're like, well, why buy an $1,800 bow when you can buy a $529 bow? And which is the Alaskan and you'll never shoot the difference. You're not good enough to ever shoot a difference. Um, so why spend $1,800 on a bow when you could spend five thirty on a bow and then use that extra $1,300 to go on a sweet hunt? It, again, it comes down to that, that type of decision. You know what I mean? No, oh, I, I know exactly what you mean. And, uh, I wouldn't even go so far as to say that $1,800 bow is better than the $500 bow. Um, a lot of it's marketing, uh, a lot of it's little tweaking here and there that I don't even think a quote unquote expert could tell the difference in. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, that bow is going to last just as long. Uh, it's going to shoot just as tight of groups and kill just as many animals as the $1,800 bow. Right. And uh, if you're into buying different bows every every two or three years, you can buy three of them. <laughs> <laughs> for less than buying one. So, yeah. Uh, I had a friend call me and he's not a bear guy. He doesn't shoot bear. And he said, I was in a bow shop last weekend. And he said, you know, I hadn't mentioned, and he's one of my, my close friends. And he said, I hadn't mentioned, you know, knowing you or being your friend or, or anything like that. And I was talking to this guy and, and he said, they're a large retailer. They, they carry all bows. And, and, uh, he said, so what's your best bow this year? And he said, I kid you not, he picked up the Alaskan. And he said, this one right here, man, it's a stinking shooter. And uh, my buddy said, really? He said, I've had a friend been telling me the same thing. So now I know he's not just blowing smoke up my butt. <laughs> and I said, dude, I'm <laughs> right. telling you, man, I'm telling you, dude, it could shoot against any bow on the market, and it's 530 bucks." Right. The cams are awesome. Um, uh, when my bow came in, uh, the draw length was a little too long for me. Um, it, it took me less than 10 minutes to adjust the draw length perfectly. Right. Everything was still, uh, timed properly and, uh, it just shot like crazy. Uh, some bows just have it all together and that's one of them. Yeah. What is your, what is your effective range on an animal? What will you shoot at, at an animal? I actually, it upset some whitetail hunters from the East because, they never even have the chance to shoot that far. But in the West, on animals that, that aren't string jumpy like a whitetail, I feel very comfortable out to 60 yards. Uh, I can hit my stocking cap every time at 60 yards, uh, unless the wind is ripping or, or uh, uh, I've been climbing a mountain for three hours and, and I'm, I'm panting, uh, in which case I don't shoot that far. But if I'm relaxed and... Uh, uh, have time uh, and, and I'm able to use my rangefinder. Uh, uh, Sixty yards is very doable for me. Uh, I, I, I have run in. It's not as common anymore with release aid bows, which are more accurate by their very nature. It's not as common anymore. But uh, you still run into people who say, "Oh, that's unethical," and 
you shouldn't shoot that far. Uh, but you look at the averages for animals like mule deer and elk and pronghorn antelope in the Pope and Young statistical analysis booklets, and a high percentage of the record book animals taken from Pope and Young in Western species, the high percentage are taken over 40 yards, 40 to 60 yards. Uh, so it's not that uncommon. And I don't think it's unethical. If you can do it, if you can't, you probably shouldn't complain about it. That's the way I yeah. look at it. Well, the best way I ever heard it described, I had a gentleman say, when an animal steps out and I think to myself, I can make that shot 100%, then I shoot it. He said, you know, there's times where the animal's at 60 and I say, I can 100% make that shot and I shoot it. And he said, and then there's times where there's a deer at 13 and I don't think I can make the shot and I don't take it for whatever reason. The deer is skittish. The deer is jumpy. The deer is alert. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of, of brush in your way. Maybe for whatever reason, um, he said, you know, I've passed on 13 yard shots because I didn't think I could make an ethical shot. And then I'll, you know, in the same weekend, I'll, I'll shoot at 60 at an animal just because the situation and the things, the way things are laid out. And he just says, you know, I know I can make that shot. And, uh, and so that's what, for me, that's what it comes down to is if you look at an animal and you think to yourself, I can 100% shoot this animal, mm -hmm. take the shot. I, I agree. Uh, the distance is, is. Uh, what so many people zero in on, but there are a lot of other factors that have to come into play besides distance. Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, you could be too close to a cow's deer. The cow's deer are the string jumpiest animals I've ever been around. I'd rather shoot a cow's deer at 40 yards than 15 yards because that deer at 15 yards is intimately threatened and he's almost certainly going to crouch and wheel. Uh, you're better off, in my opinion, if everything's right, to shoot it a little farther distance. So there are a lot of lot of factors involved. A hundred percent. And it all comes down to the hunter. And this idea of other people telling people what's ethical and not, I don't know where that came from because you can't tell me how far I can shoot. Um, you can't tell me what I feel comfortable with. You, The idea of being ethical by nature has to be decided by that hunter. Uh, because there is no state law that says you have to shoot within 40 yards. There is no state law that says you have to be, you know, between 20 and 30 yards before you can shoot. There is none of that. So based off of that, the idea of ethics has to come down to my shooting ability and what I feel comfortable shooting an animal at. And, and, and same for you. I can't tell you what's ethical or not. You know, I've been with guys before on hunts and, and I learned very quickly they don't want to shoot past 20. And if there's a, a deer or a hog or whatever it is at 31, I'm not going to tell them to shoot because I learned quickly. They don't feel comfortable shooting at that distance. Mm -hmm. That's fine with me. They've made that decision in their mind. And mm -hmm. if they don't want to shoot, they don't by all means don't shoot. Uh, because if you don't think you can make the shot, don't make the shot, but you can't tell me where I can make a shot and where I can't. Now there has been times where I've looked back and I thought that was a stupid decision. I should not have taken that shot. I let my emotions get the best of me. I let the horns speak to me a little too much and I made a stupid shot. And guess what? I apologize. I shouldn't have done that. And I'm sorry, but you can't do that for me. And you can't even say you missed, you made an unethical shot. No, just because you missed doesn't mean I, from the beginning made an unethical shot. I'm out of made a bad shot but it was still ethical. Um, so th th it's a very hard idea um, to tell somebody how far they should or should not shoot. 
I agree uh, that uh, forcing your uh, perceived ethics on somebody else is wrong. That aggravates me. It also aggravates me when people say, well, you shouldn't even practice beyond X yards. That's bad. I think everybody should practice farther uh, than they think they're shooting an animal because it makes those shorter shots look like chip shots. Uh, If you don't practice at 60 or 50 or 70 or whatever, uh, you're not going to be as good at 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 as if you uh, honed your skills at longer range. Yeah, 100%. Somebody one time in an interview asked Michael Jordan, how do you, how, what exercises can you do to jump better? Um, and Michael Jordan said, jump more. And the same is true with archery. If you want to be a better shot, shoot more. Challenge yourself. So I always tell people to shoot double the distance. So if you want to shoot at 30 yards at animals, practice at 60. If you want to shoot at 60, practice at 120. I know that sounds obscure, but like you just said, shooting at 100 yards is going to break down your shot completely. And you will know everything you're doing wrong. Because what makes you miss by an inch at 60 will make you miss by a foot at 100. So you'll know everything about your shot process shooting at longer distances. And it'll hone in those skills. Uh, like I practice religiously with my recurve at 40 yards. Um, I'm not going to shoot at a white tail at 40 yards. But I want to be able to very comfortably shoot a white tail at 20 yards with my recurve. So I practice at 40, and it breaks down my shot. Oh, I'm missing a foot to the left. I, I hit it 20, but I'm missing a foot to the left. Well, it really causes me to look at how I'm plucking my string. Um, and so, yeah, I, great, great advice there. Um, Chuck, to wrap up, what's the number one tip or trick that you would tell somebody as a hunter? I think I think more than anything else, uh, persistence is what gets it uh, eventually. Uh, you're kind of a masochist if you're a bow hunter anyway. If if uh, Mr. Murphy was around, you would have to say that he was an optimist uh, when it comes to Murphy's Law. If it can go wrong, it will multiple times. Uh, you've just got to keep a uh, stiff upper lip and keep going after it, sooner or later, things are gonna turn out right. And I don't care if you're in a tree stand for whitetails or spot and stalking uh, antelope in the West or trying to get close to a bull elk, it's gonna go wrong most of the time. Don't give up, just keep trying. And and if you're persistent, uh, you'll get the job done eventually. Absolutely. Great tip. Before we go, um, let me give a quick thank you to our friends over at the John V. Mesh Memorial Scholarship. I'm very picky about what nonprofits that I support, um, and this is one that I immediately jumped on board with. Uh, John Mesh was a firefighter in the Kansas City area. He died in the line of duty. He had a strong passion for getting kids involved in the outdoors. And so the John V. Mesh Memorial Scholarship holds these big events to introduce kids into the outdoors, to get them plugged into the outdoors. And then they give a scholarship each year to somebody who's going into an outdoor uh, field of study, um, like a wildlife biologist or a a state park ranger, something along those lines. Uh, I would highly recommend you guys to check out the John B. Mesh Memorial Scholarship um, and see if there's an event close to you. Consider supporting it. It's a fantastic nonprofit. Uh, Chuck, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's always a pleasure. Um, I can't wait to do this again because I'm sure more people have more questions. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for all that you do for hunting. Um, guys, thank you for listening. Y'all have a great week. Thanks for making me look good. 
Yeah, I try. <laughs> it's easy. It's easy. You know, there's some people you got to carry along. And then there's some people who just do it and do it well. You're one of them. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you.